You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Uh, Loving God, we ask that you might take away all those thoughts and distractions that might cloud our heart's vision. Instead, give us the eyes to see and the humility to receive the treasures of your word written for us. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, I can't see the response online, so you guys can wave into uh, the camera when I ask this question. But for those of you who are gathered here, can I just get a sense? Can you put your hand up if you've been to the Qantas Business Lounge before at the airport? Okay, a few. Any airport business lounge. Okay, not too bad. Here's, here, for some reason, I'll tell you a story another day, but I, I got to go into the chairman's lounge at the Sydney International Airport. I've, I've only ever been once, and let's face it, I'll never go again. But can I tell you, it, it's absolutely amazing. You don't, you don't quite believe this place exists until you go there. So you walk through the frosted doors, and there's two Qantas staff who are waiting there for you, and they go, hello, Mr. Chairman, it's good to see you. Can we take your bags? They have a menu there, it's all free, you get, well, presumably you pay for it elsewhere, but it's all free there, and the, the menu food is inspired by Neil Perry's Rockpool restaurants. But if you don't like that, that's okay, you can just tell the waiter or the chef, can you please make me X, Y, Z, and they'll make it for you. And when it comes time to board your flight, you don't have to have that paranoia or anxiety of looking at the board every five minutes going, is it now, is it now, is it now? No, someone will come to you. And they'll go, oh, Mr. Cheung, it's, it's time to board your flight. Here's your boarding pass. And then you walk through these doors and somehow, I don't know how they do this, you miraculously appear just at your gate. I'm not quite sure how they do it. Now, I've never quite ex- experienced anything like it. You see, being in the chairman's lounge, I'll tell you what it felt like. It felt like being in the, I don't know, the aviation kingdom of God, right? The land flowing with milk and honey. A city of unending joy and perfect peace. The one place that everyone wants to be. But I hate to say it, not just anyone gets to go into the chairman's lounge. No, to get into this kingdom, oh, you need to be a very special person. You need to be a top business leader, a senior government minister, a high court judge. You need to be rich and wealthy so that the chairman of Qantas, Mr. Alan Joyce, will pick up the phone and invite you in. Now, I know what you're all thinking. You're like, How did you get in? (laughs) Now that is a story for another day. But I think sometimes we we actually think about the kingdom of God a bit like the chairman's lounge, don't we? A land flowing with milk and honey, a city of unending joy and perfect peace, the one place that everyone wants to be, but to get in, we need to be rich, wealthy, or maybe even good enough to rack up the frequent flyer points to get through the door. And so what do we do? We work, we, we hustle, we labor. Also, that just like the chairman, God might notice our goodness, might notice our success, might notice that we are worthy and invite us in. Whether it's by our good works or our great wealth, we try to buy our way into the kingdom of God. But if you've read Mark's Gospel, you know that that just doesn't work, right? We've seen throughout this Gospel that Jesus is not a king for the rich and wealthy. 
No, today we're going to see that Jesus instead is a king for the poor and needy. And we're going to see that truth play out in the lives of three people. Three people. The man who has it all. The God who does it all. And the one who gives it all. Years ago, I met a guy, and let's call him Sam. And Sam was the man who had it all. He wore RMs and dressed really well. He wasn't very tall, but he was pretty good looking. He was a successful medical doctor. He drove a luxury car, married a beautiful girl who was a corporate lawyer, and together they bought a four-bedroom house in the leafy streets of Hawthorne. Sam, oh, Sam was a man who had it all. I hated Sam. And you know what was even worse? He was godly. I mean, he was humble. He was loving. He was Christ-like. He would serve the least and the lowly. It was, I just thought to myself, is there anything wrong with this man? And then I knew it. Maybe, just maybe he's tone deaf. And I stood next to him at church and he sings so beautifully. I hate Sam. You see, in our passage today, we meet another man who has it all. In verse 17, this man, he runs up to Jesus. He kneels before him and look at what he asks. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Wow. What a great question. In fact, I actually suspect throughout Mark's gospel so far, that is the best question that anyone has ever asked. Unlike many of the people who have gone before him, no, this man, he gets straight to the heart of Jesus' mission. Oh, this man on the outside, he gets it. But notice how Jesus replies in verse 18, why do you call me good? No, no one is good except God alone. You see, Jesus, he looks into his heart. And he sees what no one else can see. This man on the outside, he's calling Jesus good. But in fact, no, no, he thinks that he himself is good. So what's Jesus saying? No, no one, not even you, is good except God alone. But but on the outside, this man, can I tell you, he is as good as it gets. He's the man, as we said, who has it all. But in fact, when Jesus summarizes the entire law in verse 19, look at what this guy says. Teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. You know, growing up reading this story, it's at this point that I really hated this guy just as much as I hated Sam. Because, like, we think to ourselves, as if, like, no one really believes this guy, as if he's really kept all of God's commands. But actually, there's nothing in this passage that leads us to doubt his sincerity. As far as we can tell, no, this is a remarkably godly man. If anyone is good enough to get into the kingdom, surely it's him. This is the man who the chairman picks up the phone to and says, guess what? Welcome into the chairman's lounge. But look at what Jesus then says. You lack one thing. You lack one thing. Thing. It's ironic, isn't it? In a passage that is full of everything that this man has, Jesus highlights the one thing he lacks. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Do you see a portrait of this man? See, this man is godly and this man is wealthy. And here's 
where the passage gets really uncomfortable. Because this is the Christian man who serves faithfully at church, who loves his wife dutifully, who reads the Bible with five young men, who also happens to be remarkably wealthy, who owns a, uh, who owns a very nice house, who works a prestigious job, who lives a materially comfortable life. And then we stop and think to ourselves, my gosh, this is the man that I want to be. Faithful and fortunate. Christian and comfortable. Godly and wealthy. I want to be the Christian man who has it all. All the spiritual wealth and all the material wealth. But you see, that's exactly his problem. There's the great irony. You see, it's precisely because he lacks nothing that he actually lacks everything. That the man who has everything he ever wanted lacks the one thing he most needed. And that's faith. See, it doesn't matter that he appears godly on the outside. On one level, it doesn't matter that he reads the Bible one-to-one with younger men and serves as a Bible study leader because in his heart of hearts, he does not trust the Lord. That, that's why Jesus tells him, go. Sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Stop putting your faith in your fortune. Stop putting your trust in your treasure. Stop finding your worth in your wealth. No, give it all up. Sell it all up. And come, put your faith in me. Make me your only safety. Make me your only security. Make me your greatest treasure. Give the treasures of earth to gain the treasures of heaven. But the man who ran to Jesus with such great excitement now walks away racked with grief. And you notice how Mark writes this, right? He leaves the punchline to the end at verse 22. Why? Because he had many possessions. Because he had many possessions. There it is. You see, all this man's stuff, it it cluttered his heart. It, It stopped him from seeing Jesus as the greatest treasure that God can give. And here's the great tragedy of it all. He ends up rejecting the treasures of heaven to cling to the relative trash of earth. If you're not a Christian, you you might read this, you might balk, right, at Jesus' call to go, sell, give and follow. But if you think about it, it sounds stupid, right? Like, why in the world would I ever make that sacrifice? I love the lifestyle. I love the comfort. I love the security that my money can buy. I'm not so dumb that I would trade it for the world. But the the treasures of earth, they're just that, aren't they? They're treasures destined only for this life because in the end, everything that we own, well, it will collect dust and rust. And even our bodies will decay and die. But can I tell you, what Jesus offers, it is infinitely greater than the treasures of this earth. 
He offers you a treasure that will never perish, never spoil and never fade. He offers you an eternal life, a life of eternal forgiveness, perfect peace, an eternity of life and love with the God who created you and loves you and all His people in a renewed world. Treasures that will never perish, spoil or fade. Can I tell you that treasure that no money can buy? And Jesus is offering it to you right now. Can you hear him? Come, follow me. And I promise you, you will never regret it. Some of you uh, will have heard me read this quote before, but it's just almost too good to not repeat. In the weight of glory, this is what C.S. Lewis writes. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. But like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine, he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Oh, if you're not a Christian, God is offering you a holiday at the sea. An infinite eternity of sins forgiven, shame covered, a slate wiped clean, an eternity of joy. Please, don't settle. Don't settle for mud, for mud pies in a slum. Don't settle for the treasures of this earth. Fellow Christian, I wonder, if Jesus told you, go, sell, give, follow, how do you feel? Is your first impulse? Well, of course. I mean, how... How could I not give my all to the God who gave me His best? Or is your first impulse? He doesn't mean that literally, does He? Is your first impulse to, to cling to the Lord Jesus? Or is your first impulse to cling to your own treasures? Now we can argue over whether this is hyperbole or not. Sure, we can say Jesus is not calling to literally sell all that we have, but let me tell you, our, our emotional reaction, that first impulse, it says it all, doesn't it? Just like this man, we, we hear Jesus' words, and instead of rejoicing that we gain the treasures of heaven, what do we do? We grieve. We grieve that we've got to give the treasures of earth. It's funny reading that passage, isn't it? Because our eyes almost skip over that phrase, phrase, treasures of heaven, and all we see is all that we have to give up. And we totally miss all that God is offering us. I don't know about you, but this passage stings, doesn't it? It stings. But isn't it beautiful that Jesus doesn't come at us with a stick? Look in verse 21. What does Mark write? Looking at the man, Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him. 
Friends, I want to give a public confession and ask for your forgiveness because I am not like Jesus. And all too often it is easy for me to respond to our sin and our greed with harshness. Jesus loved him. Well, not me. I'll tell you my response. Why don't you love Jesus? Don't you love him enough? But that's not Jesus' response. No, he's so much more loving than I am. Thank God for that. He sees our greedy hearts. And he doesn't come at us with harshness or hate. No, he moves towards us with gentleness and love. And so with gentleness and love, will you allow me to apply God's word to our hearts as a church family this day? Friends, I suspect that by any objective measure, all of us here without exception are this rich man. All of us. And here's what's scary. This man shows us that It is possible to be faithful on the outside, but actually faithless on the inside. And the dead giveaway is in how we manage our money. Our wealth reveals where our hearts truly lie. You see, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Just think about that. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So pause. By that measure, where is your heart? You see, that's why Jesus tells this man to go, sell, give and follow. It's not because he's making a virtue out of poverty for the sake of poverty. He's not saying that every Christian must live in destitution. But he knows that if anything is going to draw our hearts away from him, It's going to be our money. It's going to be our stuff. It's going to be our wealth. So in calling the man to let it go, he's saying, give up the very thing which is most likely to grip your heart. Give up and let go of the very thing which you are most likely to trust in instead of me. Give up and let go of the very thing on which you will base your hope and your future. You see, he's calling us away from salvation by works. He's calling us away from salvation by wealth. And he's calling us to salvation by faith. So, are we willing? Are we willing to go, to sell, to give, and to follow? Some people will say to me, well, you know what, Adam, as a Christian, what's important is that you're using your wealth to serve other people. So it doesn't really matter how much you earn, just use it wisely. I wonder though, I wonder if we're just justifying our greed. One of my friends uh, says that um, he suspects that many Christians insist on giving 10% of their income to gospel ministry so they can keep the 90% for themselves. You see, Jesus calls us to give so that we will not trust our wealth. He calls us to give our greed away. And can I suggest that means giving till it hurts? 
Because until our giving loosens our grip on our wallets, I suspect our giving is simply trying to pay God off. We're just giving him what lawyers call go-away money. Money to assuage our guilty consciences, to placate our greedy hearts. No, friends, the best way to kill greed is to cultivate generosity. I read this great word of wisdom from, a, uh, from someone years ago. Decide how much you want to live on and give the rest away. Friends, let us not be the man who has it all, only to lose it all. Well, Jesus now speaks to his disciples. And in verses 22, 23, and 24, he tells them how hard, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's fascinating, he covers the field. The words he uses, the words he uses for wealth, it describes landed wealth and liquid wealth. Our investment property and our investment portfolio. And the disciples are absolutely astonished. Because they would look at this rich man, right? They would look at him over there and they would have seen his wealth as proof positive of God's blessings. And I hate to say it, it's actually how many people still think about God today, isn't it? If someone has a good job, a good marriage, a large house, it must be a sign of God's favor. But Jesus shows us that wealth isn't a spiritual blessing, in fact, it's a massive spiritual blessing burden. He says it over and over and over again. If we're rich, and as I said, all of us here are, then we've got the biggest spiritual handicap. Because it's so easy to trust our wealth. Isn't it so easy for our hearts to be drawn to the things that glitter? And then in verse 25, Jesus illustrates his point. People say that Jesus isn't funny. Read this. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Just picture that for a moment, right? A, a camel, it is literally the largest animal in Palestine. The eye of a needle. The smallest opening imaginable. When I was a kid, my mum wanted to teach me how to sew. I gave up when I couldn't thread the needle and that was just a piece of string. Imagine a camel, right? See, for many of us, wealth isn't just a spiritual handicap, it's a spiritual death sentence. I've been really challenged by this personally reading this, because as I said, I think if we live in a country where there's a social security net, we're, we're all this guy, right? So let's just kind of, by any objective measure, let's level the playing field. But if Jesus is right and I suspect he is. If he's right that wealth jeopardizes our salvation, how many of us want to give it away? I mean, it stands to reason, right? If it's going to kill us from the inside out, why hoard more? We like to say, give to gospel ministry out of generosity. Give to the God who's been generous to you. Great motivation. Do that. 2 Corinthians 9, read it. Generosity for God's grace. Great motivation. But I wonder, and this hasn't been in my heart until I've thought about it now, how many of us give to gospel ministry out of fear? I'm not talking about an unhealthy fear of God's judgment. I'm talking about a right fear that too much wealth will draw my heart away from God. 
John Wesley writes, the last part of man to be converted is his wallet. It's why Charles Spurgeon writes, with some Christians, the last part of their nature they'd ever get sanctified is their pockets. See, money is a bit like nuclear power, isn't it? It can, it can be put to great use of the common good, but in high dosage, it'll kill you. And based on the average income of many Christians in Melbourne, brothers and sisters, I suspect we're playing with kryptonite. No, the wise Christian will give her money away, for she knows that too much of it will imperil her soul. It's no wonder that the disciples are astonished. Then who can be saved? Well, here's the truth. Newsflash, I love money. I love comfort. I love material security. I love my stuff. Don't you touch it. I don't want to let it go. If you give me a choice, I can tell you right now, let me level with you all, I will always choose the world over Jesus. I will always choose my wealth first. So the disciples go, who, who can be saved? Because that's all of us, isn't it? And then Jesus speaks the, the immortal words that would be taken out of context for centuries to come. With man, it is impossible. But don't worry, not with God. Because all things are possible with God. You know the best thing about people, the way in which we take that out of context? We often take that out of context to justify our greed and success in the world. So we go, you know, oh, you know, I don't know if I'll get that promotion or that pay rise. Don't worry. All things are possible with God. And it's like, no, it's the exact opposite, right? This man, he came to Jesus asking that question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, mate, you can't do anything. It's God who does it all. And later in Mark's Gospel, we see just how true that is. As Jesus does for us, what we cannot do for ourselves. He gives his life as a ransom, a, a payment, a, a purchase price for our salvation. What God is showing us is that no person is rich enough to pay the debt that we owe our God. But Jesus, Jesus who, who has the wealth of heaven, pays it all to settle our debts with God. He pays it all at the cost of his own blood. And you know what? It doesn't stop there because Jesus then gives us his spirit to change our hearts from the inside out. His spirit who will transform our greedy hearts into generous hearts to make us people who will truly go, who will sell, who will give and who will follow. Jesus is the God who does it all. But a warning. If you do truly give it all for Jesus, there is a great risk. There is a great risk. And that is the risk of resentment. Because if I go, if I, if I sell, if I give and, I'll, and I follow... What if I one day resent God for having to have made that sacrifice? What if I then live each and every day going, was it worth it? 
it looks like that's what Peter's feeling in verse 28. Look, we've left everything and followed you. You can hear the bitterness, even a hint of regret. And the truth is, I actually empathise with Peter. I empathise with him. To be honest, I think all of us should empathise with him. Because every Christian surely has paid a cost for following Jesus, haven't we? A costless Christianity is a Christless Christianity. And if we haven't paid any cost for following Jesus, I'm not sure that we actually are. We've got to understand, that I'm not talking about the cost of gospel ministry. No, this is simply the cost of everyday Christian discipleship. But there's the risk, isn't it? If I live for the glory of God, if I live for the cross, then the, the foregone income, the, the forfeited luxuries, the passed up opportunities, oh, it's so easy to become resentful, isn't it? You've grown up in a ministry family, you'll know that cost better than most. But notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, avoid ministry because of the cost. Avoid discipleship because of the cost. No, he says, count the cost. Take up your cross and follow me. Give yourself to the work of ministry. Give yourself to the cause of the gospel. Because it's worth it. It's worth it. You see, if you give up the treasures of this world, you will gain the treasures of heaven. And sacrifice, not just your money and your wealth. No, 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 Jesus expands it now. Sacrifice your family and friendship bonds as well. See, if you choose Jesus over your fortunes and your family, then Jesus promises you'll receive a hundred times more. Now at this time, and eternal life in the age to come. You see, believe it or not, there are this worldly blessings of the kingdom that we get to enjoy right now. One person asked me, they said, is, is the gospel just really cosmic delayed gratification? Well, no. Because we, there are those that we get to enjoy right now. But notice those blessings are mixed with persecution. In, in fact, more often than not, those blessings are enjoyed in the midst of persecution. And then in the age to come, all pain and suffering is at an end. We will enjoy those blessings unhindered forever. You see, friends, the one who gives it all today will gain some of it now and all of it forever. Some of you have chosen to sacrifice your family bonds for the sake of the gospel. You have chosen to follow Jesus, be baptized and commit to the church because you know that in your baptism you are declaring, I belong to Jesus. I can't begin to imagine that cost. That's a cost that I have not paid. And I respect and honor you so much for making. But if you make that choice, let me tell you all that you stand to lose. You will almost definitely lose your parents' approval. They may think that you're crazy. 
For a season, you may even lose their love. And in one sense, you do actually lose them. Because our baptism is a dying to our old selves and everything that we once trusted in, including our family. Oh, there is a high price to pay for choosing Jesus over our families. But, but let me tell you how much more you stand to gain. You will gain God as your father, Jesus as your brother, and the church as your family, your eternal spiritual family. You may not receive the approval of your mum or your dad, but you'll receive the heavenly approval of God as your father in heaven. And you may even lose their love, but God promises you will never be separated from His. You see, friends, whatever your sacrifice, Jesus is worth it. And you'll never regret it. Some of you will choose to cap your career, put a limit or a ceiling on it, or even give it up altogether for the sake of the gospel. You might choose to forego a promotion, work a less demanding job, or use the opportunity to quit altogether so that you might give yourself, give more or all of your time to God's people and His mission in the world. If that's you, let me tell you all that you stand to lose. You may lose the respect of your colleagues. You will lose the opportunity to make a name for yourself or build a career for yourself. And you will definitely lose the chance of a higher income. Oh, there is a high price to pay in choosing Jesus over our work. But let me tell you how much more you stand to gain. You will gain a far greater work, a far greater mission as you devote yourself to the proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. You will gain the privilege and joy of making not a temporary name for ourselves, but an eternal name for Jesus to be lifted high. And you will be storing up for yourself treasures in heaven, the greatest treasure of which is God Himself. Oh, when it comes to your career, whatever your sacrifice, Jesus is worth it and you'll never regret it. And some of you will choose to be selective in who you marry or even forfeit marriage altogether for the sake of the gospel. And if you make that choice, let me tell you, and I suspect I don't need to, but let me tell you everything you stand to lose. You will lose the comfort and companionship of a lifelong spouse. You will forfeit the experience of sexual intimacy in a committed marriage. And it's interesting, as I get older, I notice that unmarried people, it's less about the companionship, but actually this final factor, you will give up the opportunity to have children of your own as a mother or a father. Oh, if you choose Jesus of your relationships. That is a high price to pay. But let me tell you how much, how much more you stand to gain. You, you will gain the satisfaction, the contentment of the all-sufficiency of Jesus over every earthly relationship. You will gain the freedom to serve God and His people in radical, unexpected, and yes, even dangerous ways. 
and you will gain the blessing of fathering and mothering many spiritual children whom you will have discipled in the Lord. Oh, when it comes to choosing Jesus over your marriage, can I tell you, whatever your sacrifice, Jesus is worth it and you'll never regret it. Peter Adam once wrote, one of the most moving questions I was asked at a preaching conference was whether ministers would be bitter for eternity because of the pains and suffering of Christian ministry. I replied that Christ's well-done, good and faithful servant would wipe all the tears from our eyes. And the same is true, not just for ministers, but for every Christian, for all of us who follow Jesus. Will I be bitter for eternity because of all the pains and sufferings of Christian discipleship? Will I be bitter for having forfeited and forsaken the riches and treasures of this world for the sake of the gospel? No. Not for a moment of eternity. For on the day we enter the kingdom of God for all time, we will hear those words. Well done. Good and faithful servant. And God will wipe all the tears from our eyes. But can you see what Jesus is saying? We cannot keep this mortal life and its riches. But we cannot lose our eternal life and its blessings. So he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives the riches of earth to gain the riches of heaven. Let me pray. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Thee I freely give. I will ever love and trust You in Your presence daily live. I surrender all. I surrender it all. All to Thee, my blessed Saviour. I surrender all. Amen.